0: How God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Genesis Part 2, Creator and Creation. I'd like to give you a little bit of a philosophy lesson everybody has a philosophy. It's your way of thinking about things. Uh, The word means simply to love wisdom uh, or to seek the answers to big questions. And all of us have a philosophy, but the trouble is in our modern world there are so many different philosophies being thrown at us through the mass media and in so many different ways that we get into confusion. If you accept Genesis 1, then there are a whole lot of modern philosophies that are ruled out by the very first page of the Bible. I've just made a list of some of them. I cringe when I hear a word ending in ism, I-S-M. There are only two isms I'm happy with, baptism and evangelism. But apart from that, all the other isms usually are philosophies of a false kind. For example, if you believe Genesis 1, atheism is out. Atheism believes there is no God. I'm an atheist, thank God, said someone. Um, (laughs) Agnosticism. Agnosticism is ruled out. Agnosticism says, I don't know whether there's a God or not. Well, Genesis 1 says there is. So you can't believe Genesis 1 being agnostic. Animism, which is the belief in many spirits controlling our world, spirits of rivers, spirits of mountains. There's still a lot of animism in the world. That's ruled out. Polytheism. That's the belief that there are many gods. Genesis 1 rules that out. Dualism believes there are two gods, one good and one bad, and the good God is responsible for the good things that happen and the bad God for the bad things. Well, that's not the biblical philosophy either. Monotheism believes there is only one God, one person. Judaism believes that, Islam believes that. But uh, Genesis rules that out by using the plural word Elohim. Deism believes that God is the creator but he cannot now control what he's created. He's made something like a watch, wound it up and now it runs on its own laws so miracle becomes impossible. Deism is very common even in church. Do you believe God can change the weather? If you don't believe that, you're a deist. You may believe that he created the universe but he can't control it. Theism believes that God not only created the world but is also in control of everything and everyone is made. And theism is one step toward the biblical philosophy. Existentialism believes experience is God. Our choices, our affirmation of our self, that is religion. Humanism believes that man is God. Rationalism believes reason is God. Materialism believes that only matter is real. Mysticism believes that only spirit is real. Monism is a rather funny one but it's very common today and that is that matter and spirit are essentially one and the same thing. Pantheism believes everything is God. A modern version of it is called panentheism. God is in everything. Well now, all those are ruled out by Genesis 1. If you want an ism that sums up the Bible philosophy, it is triune theism three-in-one creator and controller of the universe. That's the biblical way of thinking. It comes right out in Genesis 1 and it stays right through to the last chapter of Revelation. Well now let's move on from these rather intellectual subjects to look at Genesis 1 itself. And the first thing that strikes us is the style of Genesis 1. It is not written in scientific language. Hallelujah for that. Otherwise, even in our scientific age, very few could understand it. I picked this up somewhere. You won't be able to see it at the back, but uh, it'll be on the video. And God said, let, oh, what an equation, mathematical equation comes. So God said all that, and there was light because that's the scientific formula for light. Aren't you glad that Genesis 1 wasn't written in scientific language or none of us would understand it, or very few of us anyway. It is written in simplistic language. For example, there are only three kinds of vegetation in Genesis 1 – grass, plants and trees. It's a very simple Categorization of vegetation, isn't it? Everybody knows grass, plants and trees. There are only three kinds of animal mentioned in Genesis 1. Domesticated animals, animals that we hunt for food and wild animals. Now these simple classifications are understood by everybody everywhere. Three different sized plants, three different kinds of animals depending on their relationship to us. This is what we mean by simplistic. There are only 76 separate root words in the whole of Genesis 1. That's remarkably few. Furthermore, every one of those words is to be found in every language on earth so that Genesis 1 is the easiest chapter to translate of the whole Bible. It takes a genius to be that simple. You see, God, like every writer, has to ask, who's going to read what I write? You've got to angle your writing towards your potential reader, and uh, there's such a thing as a fog index for writers, which I test my writing on, and you take so many sentences, you count the number of multisyllable words and how many sentences, you put them in a mathematical formula and then it comes out and you know exactly who will be able to read what you write, whether it's Reader's Digest readers or Scientific Thesis readers, and it's a good way of checking. Now God wanted the story of creation to reach everybody in every time and in every place, so he made it utterly, utterly simple and the result is that a child can read Genesis 1 and get the message and it can be translated into any language. It takes genius to be that simple. Einstein was asked to explain his theory of the relativity of time and he said, one minute sitting on a hot stove seems much longer than one hour talking to a pretty girl. (laughs) Now it takes genius to be that simple and everybody now understands the theory of the relativity of time. God wanted to be that simple, so he didn't write a scientific account of creation, he wrote a simplistic one. God is the subject along with the Word and the Spirit. There's a Trinity coming in already, especially when later it says, let us make man. The verbs are very simple and I want to point out the difference between created and made. The the Hebrew word created, bara, means to make something out of nothing. And it only occurs three times in the whole of Genesis 1, for matter, life and man. Only at those three points was God creating something absolutely new. In between, he uses the word made, which means to make something out of something else. Now we can make things, we can manufacture things, but we can't create and that's a very important point in Genesis 1. There are three points at which God does something totally new out of nothing. Matter, life and man. We might say today, matter, DNA and man. The objects, the days 1 to 7, again utterly simple. Each sentence is so simple it has a subject a verb and an object. The grammar is is so simple and straightforward that again anybody can understand it. It's a remarkable production. The structure of Genesis 1 is beautifully put together. It is so orderly, spread over six days, but the six days are divided into three and three. You may never have noticed this, but clearly there are two lots of three days. At the beginning of it all, it says the earth was uninhabitable and uninhabited. It was without form and void or empty. And God takes three days to form it and three days to inhabit it. In the first three days, he creates an environment, but in the second three days, he's creating individual things or creatures that inhabit that environment. So he does it in order. He prepares the environment first and then he puts creatures into the environment. And there's an amazing correspondence between the first three days and the last three days. The first three days, he creates a varied environment by contrast. Contrast between light from darkness, sky from ocean and land from sea. He's creating distinctions which makes for variety. Having created that, on the third day he put plants in, but now he creates the inhabitants. Now the sun and moon in that sense are the inhabitants of light. I'll come back to that later. There's a very important point here. But light from darkness was general. Now we have specifics, the sun, moon and stars inhabiting that light and that darkness. The sky from the ocean fills them with birds and fish. And on the sixth day, on the dry land, the animals and human beings appear. How many of you had ever noticed that parallel between the first three days and the second three days? Could I see? Just a few of you. Isn't it a remarkable order? It's beautifully done. God is doing things in such an orderly and precise manner. He's actually bringing order out of chaos, which he loves to do. Now I told you in the last talk that Genesis 1 is mathematical. The three figures that keep coming through the account, even in the English, are 3, 7 and 10. 3 is what God is, 7 is the perfect number right through Scripture and 10 is always a completeness. Now when you look at the three sevens 7s and 10s, it's remarkable. At only three points does God actually create something. Three times he calls something by name. Three times he makes something. Three times he blesses something. All the way through, even in English, you'll find everything is in threes. The verbs are in threes. Next, sevens. Seven times it says, and God saw that it was good. Seven times. There are seven days, that's obvious. The first sentence is seven words in the Hebrew. The last three sentences in this account of creation are all sentences of seven words. Not in the English, I'm afraid, but you'll have to take my word for it about the Hebrew. Now in all this, it's in marked contrast to, for example, the Babylonian epic of creation, which is so complicated and so weird that when you compare it with the simplicity of God's Word, you will have no doubt which rings true. Well now, I must plunge, I'm afraid, at this point into the problem. But before I do so, let's just underline this point that Genesis 1 is simplistic. I think I can do it most easily by imagining a children's book describing how a house is built. And if you want to write a children's book you would have to give a simplified summary. You would say, first came the bricklayer who laid the bricks, then the carpenter came to put the window frames and door frames and roof joists on, then the plumber came to put the pipes in, the water and the waste, the electrician came then to put the wires in, then the plasterer did the walls, the decorator painted them and finally they all went on holiday so that explaining it simply to children, you would probably explain seven stages. Do you follow me? But that is simplistic and as someone who's involved in designing churches and getting them built, I know that life is not that simple. You have to have what's called a critical path analysis. And you work out when the bricklayer has to come and when the carpenter has to come and he may have to come twice and when the plumber... It's, it's a very complicated business getting a building up. But the only people who need to know that are the builders. This is good enough and this is what you would do if you were telling the story to anybody in any time and place. Do you follow me? There's no doubt that Genesis is a simplification and that science can fill out a whole more lot more details for us. But God wanted everybody to understand that he did it, that he did it in an orderly way, that he knew what he was doing. But as soon as you talk like that, then this bogey of science versus scripture comes up and uh, the tension is there. There is a tension in many scientists over anything supernatural. That is because science can only study the natural world, can't study the supernatural, so that the supernatural is something science doesn't really have any contact with and and finds difficult to think about. But there are specific questions of science that come up in relation to the Genesis 1 account of creation and I feel I must just mention them. Some, of course, of the difficulties that people have are flippant. Did Adam have a navel? I've been asked. Profound, isn't it? (laughs) Or can snakes talk? Or where did Cain get his wife? Lord Soper was asked that at Hyde Park Corner once and he just said to his questioner, why are you so interested in other people's wives? (laughs) Uh, There are in fact three possible answers, but I'm not going to give them to you. One of the latest I read in a national press was, did Noah take woodworm into the ark? (laughs) Or technically two woodworms. (laughs) (laughs) Or one common one I get asked today is, why are dinosaurs never mentioned since we've become so fond of them? But these, frankly, are flippant. There are much more serious issues that we have to face. The speed of creation. Geologists tell us it was four and a quarter billion years. Genesis seems to say it was six days. There's a little bit of a gap there to be closed. (laughs) Similarly, the age of the earth, the order of creation. Actually, the remarkable thing is that science agrees with the order of Genesis 1 with one exception and I think that can be explained. The exception is that sun, moon and stars don't appear till the fourth day, after the plants are on Earth. But in fact we now know that the original Earth was covered with a thick cloud, a, a mist. In fact, Genesis 2 says a mist covered the whole Earth. Science knows that's true now. So that when the first light appeared, then it would just be generally seen as lighter cloud. Whereas when the plants came and started turning carbon dioxide into oxygen, that cleared the mist, and for the first time, the sun, moon and stars appeared in the heavens. Now given that, that actually the appearance of sun, moon and stars after the plants was due to clearing that thick cloud that surrounded the earth, then science agrees exactly with the order of Genesis 1, that uh, creatures appeared in the sea before on the land, that man appeared last. There's an astonishing correspondence on that one. So order is not now a major problem, but the origin of animals and humans is, this whole question of evolution versus creation. And there are other things like the age of the people who lived before the flood, Methuselah 969, that's the oldest man, and then the extent of the flood itself. The tragedy is that to the modern mind, these problems come first in relation to Genesis. That's why I didn't take them earlier than now, because I believe we've got to get the message of Genesis first of all, then tackle the problems later. If you just discuss the problems in Genesis, you will miss the very important messages that it has to give us. But nevertheless, we mustn't overlook the disagreements. I want to begin by saying there are three ways Of handling this problem of science versus Scripture. It's very important which way you're going to do it. The three ways are to repudiate, to segregate or to integrate. I'll tell you straight away, I believe the third is the right one. The first is taken by naive Christians who say, you've got to choose. You either choose that Scripture is right or that science is right, but you must repudiate one or the other. You can't accept both and that makes it a very simple choice. The result is that unbelievers choose science and believers choose Scripture and both bury their heads in the sand. That is not the answer to this problem, partly because science has been right in so much. We owe these video cameras to science and these spotlights. came in a car here. We've been on a red-hot telephone line, Jim and I, all this week. All these things came from science. So just to say science is wrong is probably the most foolish line to take in our modern world. But it's equally silly to say they're always right. But this way of repudiation is not the answer to say one is right and the other is wrong and face people with a choice. It leads to dishonesty. It leads people to feel that they must commit intellectual suicide in order to believe the Bible. And that is a mistake. The second way is to keep science and scripture as far apart as possible and to say that science is concerned with one kind of truth and scripture with another, that science is concerned with physical truth, material truth, natural truth, whereas scripture is concerned with moral truth and supernatural truth and therefore they deal with entirely separate issues that science tells us how and when the world came to be, whereas scripture simply tells us who and why, and they are to be kept entirely separate. Segregate them as far away as possible, then they can live together. It's a rather strange approach. To try and put it in its modern dress, science talks about facts whereas Scripture is supposed to talk about values. And therefore, we don't look into the Bible for facts, we look into the Bible for values. That's a very, very common way of talking today, even by preachers in churches. But it's the wrong solution. It fits our Greek thinking, and most of us think like Greeks, unfortunately, and we keep this physical and the spiritual in two watertight compartments, the sacred and the secular the temporal and the eternal. That kind of thinking is totally alien to the Hebrew mind, which saw God as creator and redeemer, so that the physical and the spiritual belong together. So I don't think this is the answer either. It involves treating Genesis as myth. Genesis 3 becomes a fable entitled, How the Snake Lost Its Legs. And Adam becomes every man instead of one man. I'm sure you've heard this kind of thing. So that these are fictional stories teaching us values about God and about ourselves, teaching us how to think about God and about ourselves, but we mustn't press them into historical fact. Now if you start on that track and treat Adam and Eve as myth, as a story with a moral truth in it but not historical truth, then where do you stop as you read through the Bible? At first, people said Adam and Eve were myths. Then they moved on a bit and said Noah was a myth. The flood story has truth in it but moral truth, not historical. Then they moved on and said Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were myths. Then they moved on and said Moses was a myth and if you saw a recent TV series on the Exodus by a man called Roma, you know that he was treating it as myth. A nice story with a good moral in it, but not historically true. And then they moved on, until now there are theologians who treat the resurrection and the virgin birth of Jesus as myth. Stories with the truth in them. That's my problem with this approach. Where do you stop? Ultimately, There's no history left in the Bible. There are only values, no facts. Of course, it makes it possible then to put the Bible alongside the Quran and alongside the Holy Vedas and other scriptures, which are values. But I believe it's destroyed the Bible. God is the God of history, history is his story and we are reading facts. Furthermore, as I said earlier, Jesus accepted Genesis as factual. Therefore, this is not the answer to the problem But it's probably the most common way that Christians have tried to get over the problem. Both scripture and science are, in fact, overlapping circles, and they are dealing with some things that are the same. And therefore, there are apparent contradictions between them, which we must look at. How then are we going to resolve? How can we bring them together? Well, we need to remember two basic things very important. And the first thing is the transitional investigations of science and I mean by that that science changes. It's always in transition and things that were regarded as scientific fact years ago are now no longer regarded as scientific fact. Science changes its views. For example, it used to believe that the atom was the smallest thing in the universe. Now we know that each atom is a whole universe in itself. It was said until very recently that the X and Y chromosomes decided whether a fetus became a male or a female human being. I gather now that's been thrown out of the window and it's something else entirely different. You really have to keep changing your mind to catch up. The whole discovery of DNA has revolutionised our thinking about life because we now know that the earliest form of life had the most complicated DNA in it and that mathematically DNA is a language. It is not a chance combination, it is a language passing on a message from one generation to another. Therefore, DNA must have a person behind it that's changing a lot of people's thinking. So science changes. It is in a state of transition. Geology is changing. I read an article by the science correspondent of the Times. He said there are now seven different ways of finding out the age of the earth. Carbon-14, radiogenic helium, magnetic field decay and oceanic nickel, etc., etc. And he gave a list of the dates that these new methods have revealed. And interestingly enough, the shortest is 9,000 years and the longest is 175,000 years, not four and a quarter billion. Well, who's right? I don't know. I think we wait until the scientists make up their mind on many real issues. Anthropology is now in a state of disorder. What we thought were prehistoric men, our ancestors, are no longer regarded as our ancestors. but creatures that came and went and disappeared. Biology again has changed. Very few believe in Darwinian evolution today. So that's the first point I want to make, that science does change its opinion. And to tie the Bible to any particular age of science would mean that in the next generation the Bible would be thrown away as well. The second thing I want to say is equally important. Traditional interpretations of Scripture can also change. The Bible is inspired but our interpretation of it may not be. I think we need to draw a very clear distinction between the Bible text and how we interpret it. For example, when the Bible talks about the four corners of the earth, who interprets that to mean that the earth is a cube or a square? See? The Bible uses what we call uh, the language of appearance. It talks about the sun rising in the east and setting in the west and running around the sky. Who takes that to mean that the sun is moving around the earth? Well they used to, but it was a wrong interpretation It's using, using simply the language of appearance. So that we need to think again about our interpretation of the Bible so that we become a little more flexible. I believe in this way, When science is realized to be transitional and our interpretation of Scripture is seen to be traditional, then we'll begin to be willing to rethink. I thought I'd illustrate this by looking at the days in Genesis 1. And I found that there are at least five different ways of interpreting the word day in Scripture and I'm going to go through all five and leave you to take your pick. How about that? There is, as I've said, a slight discrepancy between six days and four and a quarter billion years, and we need to close the gap in some way. So how are we going to take the word day in Genesis 1? It's a Hebrew word yom, which sometimes means a day of 24 hours. It can also mean an era, as in the day of the horse and cart is over. I don't mean a 24 hour day, I mean the day of the horse and cart is over. But there are five different ways of interpretation. The first is to take the word day literally as an earth day of 24 hours. Your problem then is to find more time somewhere and you'll find various commentaries, find more time in one of three ways. The first is by finding a gap between verse 1 and verse 2, or rather verse 2 and verse 3. In other words, the earth, it said, became without form and void over a very long period, and the six days are God putting it right again. That's a very common theory, you'll find it in the Schofield Bible, you'll find it in a number of Bible notes, that in fact, the six days were the reconstruction of a world that had gone into chaos over a long period. Very common theory. A second way of finding more time is to find it all in the flood. There have been various books, notably connected with the names Whitcomb and Morris, that have said that the geological data that we have all come out of the flood. Not very easy to maintain that. most intriguing way of finding time is this, that God created genuine antiques begins with the theory, how old was God when he was made? Was Adam when he was made by God? wasn't a baby, so was he 30 years old when he was made by God? In which case anybody meeting him would have said, you're 30 years old. They'd have been wrong. He would have been only half an hour old. Do you follow the theory? That God can create genuine antiques and that he can make a tree that looks like 200 years old and has all the rings in it. It's a possible theory. God could do that. But all these are ways of trying to take the day literally and find more time somewhere. Follow me? And you're welcome to take any of those interpretations. Then there are those who take a day as meaning a geological era, that it's a long time. It's an age day. Well, that's quite a common theory. Therefore, we're talking not about six days, but about six geological ages. The third is the mythological, which I've already mentioned, that treats the six days as pure myth. It's only the poetic framework of the story and the main thing is to get the moral out of the story and forget the framework. That's part of the myth. That means it's a fabled day. One of the most intriguing was by Professor Wiseman of London University. He believed the days were educational meaning that God revealed his creation in stages to Moses. And on the first day of a week in Moses' life, God said, this is what I did. And then the next day, he told him a bit more, and the next day a bit more, and a bit more. So these were school days of Moses. Hope you're still with me. And there are two forms of that theory. One is that God revealed creation verbally in words, but another intriguing is that he revealed it visually as he did the book of Revelation to John by giving Moses a kind of picture show and Moses saw uh, the light separate from the darkness, then the screen went black and then Moses saw another picture of the moisture being separated from the seas and next picture he saw plants and then animals and birds and so on, that it was a kind of picture show which he wrote down. But both of those theories, whether in word or picture, assume that the days belong to Moses' school timetable, as it were. And the final interpretation is that these were God days. Time is relative to God as well as to us, that a thousand days are like a day to God and a day like a thousand years. Therefore, God was saying to me, the whole of creation was all in a week's work. That's what it was to me. And the point of saying that would be that if you take geological time, human life loses all significance. For example, go back to Cleopatra's needle. If you let Cleopatra's needle represent the age of our planet and put a 10p piece flat on top of the needle, that's the age of the human race. And if you put a postage stamp, on top of that, its thickness represents civilised man. Do you realise we lose all significance in that? Who are we? And God, I believe, wanted us to think of creation as a week's work because he wanted to get down to the important bit – that's us on planet Earth. Well, that's the theory. The seventh day – note the length of the seventh day because that has lasted centuries it lasted all the way through the Old Testament. God's seventh day rest lasted until Easter Sunday when he raised his son from the dead. All through the Old Testament, there is nothing new created. God had finished creation. The word new hardly occurs in the Old Testament once. Yes, I can think of once. as a verse in Ecclesiastes, behold, there is nothing new under the sun. So God rested all through the Old Testament. That was a pretty long day. Well, there are five different ways. I think you've probably guessed which I'm going for, (laughs) but uh, I'm not going to press that. These are interpretations. God clearly wanted us to think of his work as a week's work. That's the message. I'm content with that message. I personally believe we're talking about God days. He's giving us his angle on it and that was just a week's work to him. To him it's only been a couple of days since Jesus died. God, time is real to God but it's relative to God as well and we need to remember that. Well, I've taken just one example there. I'm leaving the big question of evolution till the next talk because that's a biggie, especially if man is included in it. What I've tried to do here is to show you that We interpreters of the Bible need to be a little more flexible sometimes and say we may not have understood it right. And I believe scientists need to be a bit more humble, but many of them are becoming more humble as they discover the random principle in nature, that everything isn't neatly tied up in laws of cause and effect. And science is becoming much more flexible, so that recently there was an article in my morning newspaper entitled, Is Science About to Prove the Existence of God? An amazing title to read. A hundred years ago you would have read Disprove, but now there's been a swing round to a universe that is more open to personal intervention and control by God than it was before, so that science and scripture in our day are beginning to move together again. That's all to the good. I believe the third way that I showed you of reconciling science and Scripture to integrate them is necessary because both scientists and Scripture are concerned with truth. We are all committed to the truth and we want to find it out. And I believe science has found out a lot of truth about our universe for us, but it has not been able to tell us the most important truths, either about God or about ourselves. For that, We have scripture, and thank God we have. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.